The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of chapters 25 and 26. For the next year, Martin worked at the Roundsfield Clinic, a clean, brisk, and visionless medical factory that efficiently routed its patients through, removing all portions of the body that they could conceivably get along without. Martin admired the still-faced and stable Angus with the respect of the poor and uncertain for the rich and shrewd. The problem with Martin's year in Chicago was that he did not live, but rather performed procedures that demanded a tenth of his brain. After hours, he and Leora tried to compensate for the deprivation of spirit with talks, concerts, and books. Meanwhile, Martin tried his very best to persuade himself of the futility of life as a truth-seeker, and to adopt the philosophy that there is no truth. He didn't succeed. But when he tried to match himself with the limousine-riding, well-bred, captain-generals of medicine, he lost his faith in himself as a superior person, and felt instead like their footman. He is consoled when Leora reminds him of Gottlieb's phrase for such people, the men of measured merriment. In Chicago, Martin's relationship with Leora develops into one of lasting solidity. Not a rosy bliss, but the sort of intimacy that allows for irritation and querulousness. Martin is still annoyed when Leora is less sleek and suave than the likes of Mrs. Dewar. And whereas Mrs. Treadgold had petted and laughed at Leora's foibles, Mrs. Dewar regards her with a characteristic, condescending sneer. When Martin criticizes Leora for her silence and her sloppiness on their way home from the Dewar's place, Leora makes a defense much better than defensiveness. She meekly apologizes and tells Martin earnestly that she studied up for the evening but never could get the conversation around to what she had studied. Martin is properly ashamed. When Martin publishes his streptolysin research in the Journal of Infectious Diseases, Roundsfield and Angus show no interest because it doesn't affect their bottom line. He sends it to Gottlieb, who writes back, saying a laboratory is waiting for him at McGurk. And the ever-amenable Leora says, I'm simply going to adore New York. Martin arrives at the McGurk Building, a New York City skyscraper, and takes the elevator to the McGurk Institute offices on the 29th and 30th floors, feeling like he is already part of a godly institution. Gottlieb greets him at the door of the laboratory, still with the same demanding eyes, but gray-haired and feeble. He immediately begins making objections to Martin's paper, scolding him for publishing before he knew the math necessary to figure out the equations his discovery suggested. When Martin expresses anxiety about whether he will succeed at McGurk, Gottlieb feigns ignorance of the word and tells Martin that what stands to make him a good scientist is his stubbornness, curiosity, and refusal to follow the rules. They continue their ferocious arguing while Martin experiences the blissful certainty that he has come home. Gottlieb asks Martin what he wants to do at McGurk, and he rejects Martin's response that he wants to help Gottlieb, saying he has to do his own work. Martin says he wants to find a hemolysin for which there is an antibody. 
Gottlieb then extemporizes the religion of the scientist, a stirring tribute that defies summary. He speaks of the scientist's intense scorn for quarter truths, his desire that everything should be subject to inexorable laws, his hatred of the pseudoscientists and guest scientists, and his contempt for the soft-hearted men who have made a mess of the world. He wishes Martin happiness, vows to protect him from success, and closes by saying, May Koch bless you. Left alone in his laboratory, Martin looks out across the city and utters his own prayer of the scientist, which includes, quote, God give me unclouded eyes and freedom from haste. God give me strength not to trust to God, unquote. On the way home, his feet race to the tune, I've found my work, and he finds Leora waiting for him. Before he even speaks, she says, Oh, Sandy, I'm so glad. Martin feels that at McGurk, with his abundant materials, trained technician, freedom to do his own work, and peers devoted not to poetry or profit, but real physical laws, he has found a perfect world. On the first day, the charming and handsome Dr. Rippleton Holabird takes him on a tour of the facilities, the rooms full of laboratory equipment, the Museum of Pathology and Immunology, the Department of Publications, the famed and rare Berkeley Saunders Centrifuge, and the real wonder of the Institute, the Lunch Hall, with its Babylonian splendor. In the presence of all this grandeur, Martin strives to suppress his rustic turns of phrase. Next, he meets with the Institute director, Dr. DeWitt Tubbs, who, with his combination of prestigious degrees, honors, appointments, and awards, and his man-of-the-world demeanor, seems to be the sort of man who, quote, could control practical affairs and drive stumbling mankind onto sane and reasonable ideals, unquote. Dr. Tubbs warmly welcomes Martin, praises his tutored vision, reassures him that for the first year he will ask for no reports, and boasts of his own irrepressible devotion to milady science, though Martin observes that his laboratory appears rather unused. Tubbs introduces Martin to the real director of the Institute, his secretary, Pearl Robbins. Next, Martin meets Terry Wickett, who had been ominously referred to by Dr. Tubbs only as, oh, him, and who himself irreverently refers to Holabird as Holy Wren, the director as Tubbsy, and the famed centrifuge as Gladys the Tart. Martin prefers the smooth-talking Holabird to the rude and slangy Wicket. Martin and Leora are invited to dinner at the Holabirds, where everyone is a somebody, and everyone possesses Holabird's graceful casualness. When Holabird asks how he is getting on, Martin says he likes everyone but Wicket. Holabird praises Wicket generously, complaining only that Wicket unjustly accuses him of parading around his experience in the war. An accusation he immediately follows up with, What happened was and boastfully tells his war story. At the Institute, Martin finds himself bathed in a blissful white light of happiness, even warming to the surly intentness of Wicket. But as usual, 
we the readers are made to see hazards, like Tubbs's pretensions, Holabird's posturing, and Mrs. McGurk's devotion to movements, that Martin, in his wide-eyed wonder, does not see. The next of my posts was called Overwhelmed by Insight. As bogged down as I might sometimes be, another feeling overwhelms me every time I sit down to do a focus summary of the chapters. I'm astounded by the sheer volume of insight Sinclair Lewis can pack into a single paragraph. It makes summaries difficult, because I have to kill babies, if you know that phrase from editing. It pains me to omit a single one of the thoughtful observations he makes. But if I didn't, it wouldn't be much of a summary. A further challenge, which I've mentioned in other contexts, of summarizing these chapters is that most of them really do seem to be fairly casually organized but highly astute musings on a topic, rather than a clearly purposeful progression of events. Though the novel does plod forward, I wouldn't say it has much of a plot, in the sense that each new chapter follows and develops logically from the prior one, with clear expansion rather than repetition. A musical analogy occurred to me that may or may not be exactly right, I'm not a musician, but that I find helpful, so I'll share it with you. Time will tell, but based on our reading so far, and on my reading of the whole novel over a decade ago, I definitely think this novel has a theme. But I think of it as sort of a rhapsody on that theme, a sequence of explorations of and variations on that theme, rather than as something carefully and purposefully crafted to build toward and ultimately arrive at that theme. In any case, I often find myself absorbed in his rhapsodies. At times, I don't even care where we are going, because I so enjoy his brilliant insights into where we are. Let's take as an example only the very first paragraph of chapter 25, describing Martin's experience at the Rouncefield Clinic. He captures the empty tedium of each of Martin's days by describing them as feeling longer than a sleepless night. Anyone who has suffered sleeplessness knows how interminable a night can seem, so this is saying something. To capture the monotony of all of Martin's spiritless days at the clinic, he points out that though each day seems agonizingly long, the whole year speeds by as an undifferentiated blur without events or seasons or eagerness. He captures the polished exterior and soulless interior of the clinic by describing it as a clean and brisk and visionless medical factory. He captures the sort of person who would be duped into unnecessary medical procedures at a fancy-schmancy clinic, with a description of the aimless and meaning-seeking, quote, socially dislocated women who needed children and floor scrubbing more than little skyographs, unquote. He captures the way in which a high sticker price can be enough to convince the uncritical consumer of something's value with the simple two-word phrase, gratifyingly expensive. And he captures the self-doubt a poor and socially maladroit person can feel around elite society as, quote, the respect of the poor and uncertain for the rich and shrewd, unquote. 
This was all in one paragraph, and I could have chosen at random almost any of the others. Now, some of you might say you get bogged down even by his wit and his insight, and I can relate to that too. I will not propose that we spend the next year reading only the novels of Sinclair Lewis. But even if I sometimes don't feel the desire to know every subtle facet of human existence that Sinclair Lewis observes, my goodness, can the man see. The last of my posts is one especially fun for me to share. It's called My Gottlieb. After chapter 21 and 22, two of our members wrote tributes to their own personal Gottlieb. The common denominators between these two mentors included a furious devotion to their careers, an intensity of focus, an unsympathetic demand for excellence, and an unpopularity among their peers. You can find their tributes in the comments section under post 44. It was called I've Done That. And I recommend reading both. The perceptiveness and poetry with which they both describe these two fascinating figures is inspirational. They prompted me to think about my own Gottlieb, and to conclude that we might all benefit from reflecting on whether there has been someone in our own lives who inspired us with a severe and unflinching devotion to excellence, and, if they are indeed like Gottlieb, whether this has been accompanied by some form of societal rejection and cynicism. My Gottlieb, at least one of them, was Professor Rory Coker, a University of Texas physics professor from whom, as an undergraduate, I took a captivating and life-changing course called Pseudoscience. This course was offered in the physics department, so scores of liberal arts majors took it as a way of evading the rigors of physics. Dr. Coker's goal for the class was to teach students tools for distinguishing science from pseudoscience, or fantasy, nonsense, misinformation, and confusion from truth. We learned about how to design meaningful experiments, the criteria for valid evidence, an array of logical fallacies, and more, all in the context of evaluating such realms as astrology, homeopathy, chiropractic, UFOs, and more. Many students who enrolled in the course to escape physics then resented it because it came with its own very intense rigors. It was a writing-heavy class, and he demanded the sort of logic in a student's writing that he taught as essential to real science. Attendance of his class was mandatory, a rare practice at a school with 50,000 students, and he kept daily records. He gave long, substantive, and information-packed lectures— and he expected students to pay attention and to take notes. It was by no means the cakewalk that people hoped. I fondly recall one perennial assignment he gave to his students, to go to the physics building and try to determine what activates the touch-sensitive elevator buttons. He didn't expect us to have any idea what it might be. He expected us to make reasonable conjectures, to test them, and to write clearly and systematically about our observations. This wasn't about finding the right answer. It was about employing the right method of inquiry. Was it pressure? Heat? Conductivity? I loved that assignment so much. Many people hated it.
I learned from Dr. Coker many enduring lessons about evaluating scientific claims, yes, but more broadly, about reason. Two decades later, when my husband and I were taking a trip to Austin, I looked online to see if the course was still offered. It was, and I wrote to Dr. Coker to ask if we could sit in on the class. It was a sadly disheartening experience. Sitting in the back of the large but fairly empty lecture hall, I could see that several students had their laptops open, not to take notes, but to watch YouTube videos and TV shows. Dr. Coker made regular, self-deprecating jokes about his lectures and the students' lack of interest in the class. It felt like he had given up. And given my own observations and experiences with the class, it was hard for me to blame him. I recently went to rate my professor to look at his reviews. Unsurprisingly, many rated his class a 5 out of 5 for difficulty. And, unsurprisingly, he was not affectionately described. The most memorable of the comments was, quote, If you have a choice between being taught by Coker and a mule, pick the mule. It will teach you better and cuss you out a lot less. Unquote. At the time that I went back for a nostalgic visit to his class, I was teaching writing at Van Damme Academy, and I had my students write papers inspired by concepts I had learned from him. I wrote him a long letter of gratitude, and I sent him copies of the papers. He, kindly, but without much display of enthusiasm, made comments on them and sent copies back. I can at least be serene that I conveyed to him what his class meant to me. By the way, there's a phenomenal play about a disillusioned teacher called The Browning Version. We should really read it together. Think about whether you have a Gottlieb, someone passionate, demanding, unappreciated, and cynical. Consider sharing your description with the group, and better still, writing to them to communicate your appreciation.